few weeks back, we published an interview with education consultant and commentator Alan November and the Director of Secondary Curriculum, Instruction, and Assessment for the Houston Independent School District, Mike Dorsey, after chatting with them at ISTE. Now, that interview got quite a number of listens, and we expect that's mostly because November called the edtech industry a mess at one point in the interview. November was only able to chat with us for about 10 minutes in that interview, so we really didn't get a chance to delve into what he meant by those remarks. So as a result, November came back to us and said, well, we didn't really get the whole story. Can I talk to you guys again? So we decided to get back into the conversation with November about the $1,000 pencil, (laughs) about why Khan Academy isn't really pushing the envelope, and how any change in the classroom has to start with the teacher. But before we bring you that interview, here's the news. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jo Matta. Welcome to the EdSurge Podcast. Let's get started. The Department of Education has opened grant applications to state education agencies for reworking their annual assessments. The new Enhanced Assessment Instruments program offers $9 million in grants for states to review their yearly tests in hopes of reducing unnecessary testing and reporting scores more accurately. Applications are now open and close September 22nd. Winners will be announced in January. Two University of Texas College of Education professors have launched the Black Male Education Research Collection, a website that contains hundreds of scholarly articles about factors and roadblocks in black male academic success. The professors hope that people will use the resources to make research-based policies and decisions that address the needs of black male students. Need some voting practice before the election? South by Southwest EDU's panel picker is now open which means you can weigh in on what sessions you'd like to see at next year's gathering, which is on March 6th through 9th. Here are some topics we're interested in. Panels on personalized learning, virtual reality, making decisions in a crowded ed tech market, and open data standards. Voting is open until September 2nd, and we hope we'll see you in Austin. Another major security breach has hit the SAT. Someone sent Reuters hundreds of confidential questions from the new version of the test, including 21 reading passages and about 160 math problems. Reuters did not publish any of the questions in its article, sorry high school students, but did speak with College Board spokeswoman Sandra Riley, who called this a serious criminal matter. Each week, we scour the internet for tools to help teachers find the best edtech products out there. Since January 2016, we've showcased over 100 school tools. Some resonated more than others, and a few resonated a lot. So, on EdSearch.com, we've brought the top 10 school tools that you, our readers, have loved the most in the first half of 2016. Here are the top three. The U.S. News Map, Wizard.me, and number one, Quick Rubric. Microschool system Alt School is no stranger to press, and this week, TechCrunch published a Q&A with founder Max Ventila on his startup's future. What caught our eye? Ventila said his team planned to charge up to $1,000 for the software that AltSchool has developed in-house, according to the article. But the next day, an AltSchool spokesperson clarified that the actual price may be discounted to the, quote, high hundreds of dollars, end quote. We'll see. We're keeping our eye on that microschool system. Are you starting to plan your K-12 conference schedule, but you're not sure where you want to spend your time or your money? EdSurge has your back. 
with our annual K-12 EdTech conference calendar for 2016 and 17. Head to edsurge.com to check out the 50-plus conferences to see where you should venture this year. And now it's time for Kachings. Jill Biden once said, Community colleges are America's best-kept secrets. She teaches English at Northern Virginia Community College. And one startup, Viridus Learning, has closed a $3.2 million Series A round to play matchmaker between students, community colleges, and employers. VipKid, a platform for Chinese students learning English, has raised a $100 million Series C round from investors that include Yongfeng Capital and Sequoia Capital. Focusing on aspiring English speakers ages 5 to 12, VipKid facilitates one-on-one lessons with native English speakers via webcam. The company has raised $125 million thus far, having closed a $20 million Series B just last year. Kaltura has raised $50 million from Goldman Sachs' private capital investing group. Founded in 2006, the company makes products for several types of video markets, educational, enterprise, online, and traditional TV, and describes itself as the, quote, everything video company. And now for the bread and butter of the podcast. So Alan November is an expert in education. As we've said in a past podcast, he's been a science and math teacher, an administrator, a co-founder of the Institute for Education, Leadership, and Technology at Stanford, and more. He also is, or perhaps was, a champion of technology in the classroom. Well, maybe he still is a champion, but he's a bit of a skeptical one these days. Why? We'll hear from him in a moment, but the big overarching theme in his words is that just adding technology to classrooms will do nothing to improve learning. It's more about the processes. This shouldn't be a device rat race, he says. Okay, so let's get to the interview. One quick note, listeners. Bear with us on the sound quality. I was typing notes in the background while we interviewed him on the phone, but it sounds like the microphone picked that up. You know, I should have thought more about the process and less about the technology. (laughs) I know, I'm so clever. Okay, well, here we go. Usually, when when, when business buys technology, actually, the country can actually measure uh, productivity units per person. And that's a well-established metric. And productivity per person has been going up um, on a pretty regular basis because technology makes work more productive. Mm-hmm. That's another metric. It's not that you change the work, but that you're able, frankly, to use fewer workers. So if you're building an automobile or you plow a field, one guy can now do the work of a hundred or a thousand people. So that increases the productivity of the one guy. That's the other way where technology really pays off. So you have these two ways. Either you have improvement in productivity or the quality of the work, which is another way to improve productivity, goes up. I don't know of a third one. If, if you do, you should tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, so we're good. You, you should tell me. <laughs> Somebody should tell me. Whoever wants to can tell me right now or, or any time. But those are the two ways I've, I've learned are impact of technology. Well, without question, we have not improved productivity of teachers. Uh, we, do, we do not need fewer teachers. Um, 
Two librarians have gotten wiped out because uh, we, <laughs> but um, as a result of schools thinking they don't need books, but it's not a big, it's not a big number. Um, so without, I don't think anybody can argue that productivity of teachers has improved. In fact, it's probably gone down because we need more special ed, ed teachers. We more, need more ESL teachers. If anything, productivity has dropped uh, since we've been adding technology. And if anybody wants to argue that, they can, right? Just show me where that's improved. So the only thing we're left with is have we improved the quality of the work that all the same people do who were there before? And I just don't see that. Mm -hmm. What that means, um, what that means is, and this is this is where the argument is. So people say, well, how can you defend, possibly defend, that we should be looking at standard test scores in mathematics and science and reading and writing and languages when technology just doesn't help those things. That's the wrong measure. I get that argument all the time. That, uh, especially from people in the field, that you're just looking at the, it's not fair to expect technology will improve the core business of education. But I think it is fair to say, look, this is our core business. This is why schools exist. It is to teach these skills, this this content. And I think it can be done. Uh, that's the part we never got to. Um, so what Zuba says in her book is, again, you will not get any improvement in the quality of work if you don't redefine the work or um, change processes. So processes is how you do the work. So, so for example, if, um, if in a Khan Academy, you have thousands of questions and they're the exact same kinds of algebra problems we always gave. There's no change in the design of the work. The difference is you now have thousands of questions with immediate feedback where students can pick their own level and get immediate response. That's a change in process from handing 10 problems in that every kid does the same and you don't get them back for a day or two. And that, that you can see improvement. So, so yet you're, you're left with one of two choices if you really want to improve, really want your investment to pay off, right? That's what we want. We want this investment, which is hugely expensive, not only in, in buying, but also the time, which we don't really even have to train teachers to use it well. So we have two areas of enormous cost, the stuff itself, maintaining it, and the time we have to buy to train teachers to use it, which is currently a huge bottleneck. Mm -hmm. All right, so, so the problem is the industry, I don't think the industry has read the research, frankly. I, I don't think the industry uh, realizes how sophisticated and complicated adding technology is. It clearly is not a question of let's buy everybody a device and train teachers how to use a thousand apps. That, that is absolutely not how to solve this problem. And so we end up with thousand dollar pencil.
Now, if you want to talk about what to do, you know, so so let me just stop there. Yeah. Just just from your, <laughs> just, does, does this make sense to you? I think it does. I think that the problem is companies are still making money off of selling the $1,000 pencil to improve productivity. There still seems to be a big demand for that. So I guess my question for you is, can companies and educators coexist peacefully in the world of ed tech and, and also work to actually redefine what you were saying before, redefine education, not just change productivity? Well, well wait a minute. Let's, let's discuss why schools are racing to buy technology. Okay. The biggest driver I can detect isn't that they want it, but isn't that they want to transform learning. It's that they have to give every student a device for the new state tests, mm-hmm. which are all now online. That's the driver. If testing, if new testing did not require technology, we would not see the enormous waste of money in part that we're now seeing. Mm-hmm. So for this one event, right, this one moment in the year, uh, schools feel absolutely compelled to go out and buy a device so they don't create a disadvantage for their kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, and I like to hear somebody argue that that's not true. Mm-hmm. I, I want to hear somebody tell me that that's wrong, Alan. I mean, for some schools, it seems like that it, before before Park and Smart Balance and all these online tests really came about, you know, there were some schools that were going one-to-one, but it does seem like the statewide and countrywide assessments haven't done anything to slow down that obsessive buying process. I mean... No, the obsessive buying continues because of the change in the design of tests. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been a lowering of cost, and people are also trying to say, I mean, you can run around these meetings, People are trying to figure out, can I save money on textbooks? If we buy, there's arguments that some school districts make that if we buy these digital devices, the overall savings in paper will actually save us money. Mm. So you have a second uh, compelling argument that in the long run, it, it can save you money. That's another argument that is being made. And I think that's actually right. I think if the price... But the digital device has fallen so much, and textbooks have risen so much, and the price of Xerox, Xeroxing sheets and sheets and sheets has, you know, it's expensive as well. That you could actually save money. I, I, I buy that. That one I buy too. Mm-hmm. But that's not a, that's not an argument that we're improving productivity. Mm-hmm. That that's an argument that we're saving money. Mm-hmm. Then there's another argument that if we buy it, they will come. Argument, you know. The, the naive argument that this is a silver bullet and we just have to give one to every kid and then boom. But if you look at, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, you know, OECD did a study of every nation yep. who is a member. Yep. And clearly countries who invested the most went down the most yep. relative to other countries. Yep. So my argument has actually quite a lot of data behind it. It's not an opinion. It's, it's real data that there is essentially no evidence that there is systemic improvement in core learning 
you know, that is all the subjects we're supposed to teach because of investing in technology. Except, and there are exceptions, which I want to get to. Okay. Because, because I want the industry to win. I mean, I don't want to just say, you know, you guys screwed up. I want to say, look, let's get this right. You know, let's let's figure out how 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 difficult is the problem. Can technology make a difference under what situation? So that's what I want to talk about now. Okay. But do you have any questions on the first part? That it's been oh, oh, quote what's his name at Stanford twenty five years ago. Shoot, what's his name? He wrote this amazing essay called uh, "Oversold." Underpromised. Are you talking about Larry Cuban? Cuban? Larry Cuban. Yeah. Right. Larry Cuban. There was Larry Cuban. There was Neil Postman. There was Weitzman. There was uh, what's his name at MIT. When when this first started, a lot of very smart people said, "Wait a minute. Uh, show me. You're just racing." And, and you know what? They were important voices. And looking back, scary how, what's the word, prescient they were. So, okay, now, if we take Zubov's work and we and we, we buy in that we have to change the design of the work and processes, how we do the work, I, I think we have enormous opportunity. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of that is, most teachers will agree that all students will not ask for help by raising their hand in a face-to-face environment because they're afraid. It's a, it's a, they can be mocked by friends. They, they, they don't even know how far behind they are to ask the question. Just about every teacher will agree to this. So the, the students who need the most help are the ones who typically don't ask. The smart kids actually ask for more help. Mm-hmm. But so if you go to an online platform, you know, like it's learning, uh, Eric Mazur started this at Harvard. Uh, it turns out that lots of kids, a lot, a lot more kids, will ask for help online than face-to-face because they feel safer. Okay. And there, there's a lot of examples of this. So just, just imagine a whole group of examples where technology reveals more insight into what kids are thinking than without it. Hmm. And there's a lot of, there's a whole category like that. And so the making thinking visible um, part of this is very exciting. Okay. Teachers can gain new insights. Kids can see other kids' questions, which can inspire them, because I, I think Socrates was right. Learning is social. It's, it's not an individual thing by yourself. It's engaging with other people, exchanging ideas, defending, questioning. I'm into this whole Socratic thing. Okay. And, and, and if Socrates was right, that learning is social, which I've bought into, uh, then... We should be maxing out on that. We should be maxing out on kids engaging with one another in classrooms. And online platforms are fantastic in the hands of a creative teacher to do that. Okay, now while you're doing that, 
time. So, so while you're moving, uh, while you're creating safer classrooms for kids to take more risk as learners, I um, I teach a doctoral class in leadership and managing change as a result of technology. Mm-hmm. And two, two of my doctoral students were lieutenant colonels at West Point, professors at West Point. West Point gave every student a computer in 1985. That's longer than most schools in this country. So West Point has some experience about you know, trying to figure this out. And one of the things they figured out at West Point is there's roughly two kinds of problems you can give a learner. One is called a well-structured problem. That kind of problem we could call solve for X. We, we, we give students an equation, the teacher understands the, you know, what we have to do with that equation. The kids get the same equations at the same time and they solve for X. And that happens in history and English and languages, you know, where the teacher knows the answer and the system was actually designed for easy assessment. Mm-hmm. So every kid's supposed to come up with the same answer to number one, it's either there or it's not there. That was not designed to improve learning. That was designed to make the teacher's life easier than having unique questions for every student. Okay. Okay. Now, then West Point figured out there are these things called messy problems. So a messy problem would be like a word problem, or it would be like a photograph in, in mathematics, where you have to look out the window and you have to figure out where's the algebra, which is a lot messier than if you're just given an equation spoon-fed to you where you have to solve for X. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that teaching teachers to design messy problems where you have to do more critical thinking and you have to sort of structure the problem yourself and own the design of the problem is a really good use of technology. Mm. Really good use. So I have a friend, um, Jessica uh, Cavanis, who was uh, Mathematics Teacher of the Year in Texas last year, with amazing results, incredible results in geometry. So we don't have to futz around that technology cannot make a difference to core subjects. It absolutely can. Okay. And what she did is she started to shoot photographs with her cell phone of just being out and about in the world that had to do with geometry. And she would use social media to shoot these photographs to her students, get them to engage in figuring out what's going on in the photograph. Now, she'd never done that uh, before she had that cell phone and before she had a social platform. You, You need those things. And it turned out that when she gave these messy problems to her students, they designed more complicated problems back than she ever gave them. Hmm. She was stunned by the depth of thinking because kids don't want to be bored. They don't. I don't think kids really want to be spoon-fed. We, we, we do spoon-feed them and we institutionalize them to be spoon-fed, but once you unlearn them from the, the well-structured problem, if you, if you take a look at something like Dan Meyer's, Dan Meyer's TED Talk, he, he basically says, says the same thing in his TED Talk, that, that we really want to challenge students at much higher levels of creativity than the, than, than the spoon. Spoon feeding is my word, mm-hmm. not his. 
Well, she got amazing results on standard tests. Because instead of teaching for regurgitation and memorization, Jessica taught for understanding. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge process change. Teaching for understanding instead of teaching for memorization. Well, to teach for understanding, you have to turn kids into problem designers. Process change. And you feel... We can do that really well now with, with social pla learning platforms. Really well. The problem is, when we teach teachers social platforms, you know, how do you register, how do you get the kids online, how do you, how do, you do your forums, well, you know, the whole nine yards of... We don't necessarily teach them to design messy problems, mm -hmm. which, is what we, which is essential if you're going to use those platforms well. So it sounds like it's really more of an issue with the professional development than it is with the tools themselves. Tools, right. If you give somebody a hammer, they're going to drive in a nail. I'm convinced. I don't care whether it's a neutron hammer or... A, you know, give them a high-tech hammer. If all they know is to drive in a nail, they're going to drive in a nail. So, who's responsible? If that's what you're at, I can't tell what you're asking me right now, or whether you're even asking a question, but I'll ask it. Sure. The question is, the question is who should take responsibility for identifying how to use these tools well to get to lead to higher academic achievement. Mm -hmm. I think the industry has some responsibility to this. So instead of saying here, uh, you know, take this, take this device and train your teachers how to use it, and they walk away, that's in my view irresponsible. Mm -hmm. They should understand, if you're selling somebody something, I think you have to be upfront with them and say, look, this is complex and difficult and very, very long-term work. And we're going to help you understand how sophisticated this is. It's kind of like the car industry does safety standards. And they, you know, you... you, you now, part of that is government regulation. If you look at other industries that have invented technologies, it ends up with it being that you do get occasional government regulation that comes in. It's like, wait a minute, guys, you can't just sell cars. You have to sell safe cars. And you're going to have to make lots of changes now in the design of your car. And then they come back and they say, oh, no, you can't sell leather gas. You have to take all that out. We're going to completely change. That, that you can't do. That's killing the environment. So... I think the equivalent may or may not have to happen in education that we're going to need, you know, departments of education to be a lot more sophisticated about helping schools understand how, how difficult this is. Mm -hmm. If the industry doesn't do it itself. And if, you know, I don't think we, yeah, go ahead. So, so I'm imploring the industry to do it. I don't want government regulation. I want, I want the people who are inventing and selling this stuff to explain what they're selling. I'm just wondering. Now, they may not know. 
they haven't read the research. I don't know. I don't know if they know and they're not doing it, or they don't know when they're not doing it. I bet I don't know. I'm just wondering because, you know, a lot of people say that it's schools' responsibilities to provide professional development for their teachers to learn how to use these tools. I, I feel like people go back and forth on that argument. Is it the school's responsibility? We can go back and forth on that all day long. Yeah. That, that's right. We can go back and forth. You can completely exempt the industry from having any responsibility. But, but if you're going to sell something, uh, and make claims. Mm-hmm. I think you better back up the claims you're making. Well, that's all, folks. Thanks to Alan November for once again chatting with us, sharing his thoughts, and giving it to us so straight. Hey, listeners, who do you want to hear us interview? There are a lot of people out there, well-known, maybe not as well-known, we want to talk with a lot of different people, but we're curious to learn where your interests lie. So shoot us an email to let us know at maryjo at edsearch.com. Or at blake at edsearch.com. And yes, we get thousands of emails every week, but we open the important ones and delete the boring ones. Of so course. open yours. <laughs> there we go. All right, we're off to go watch the Olympics. Simone Biles is my favorite. She's it's the just best. one gold. I'm excited. Do you think that we're going to win more gold medals than any other country? We already are. Like, and I don't foresee it stopping. <laughs> For any of our international listeners out there, it, this is all fun and games, and we literally love you. Games. This is literally games, and we love you more than we could say. <laughs> all right, we will see everybody next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast. Ooh.